Thank you, choir. It's one of my favorite hymns. I love that song, and that arrangement was beautiful, too. Thank you, Nate and Carol, for filling that in so nicely. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure, thou art. That basically summarizes so much of this whole series on worship, doesn't it? that God would be first and only in our hearts, that he would be our treasure, because Jesus told us that where our treasure is, there our heart is also. So to worship God means to have him in first place. And throughout this whole series, it's amazing to me how the Lord continues to speak through songs like that to me. And all the month long, I've had lots of readings and conversations and experiences that have reinforced all these ideas about worship, how the Lord is teaching me about how important worship is, that we were created for worship, that we all worship every day, we all will worship something, and and how vitally important it is to get that something right. The root sin from which all other sins spring forth is misplaced worship. Idolatry is what that's called. If Jesus Christ is not first and only in our heart, if he's not the sole object of our worship, then we're missing the boat. We've become, at that point, idolaters. But worship helps us fix that, right? Worship reorders our loves. It reorients our hearts and our affections onto what matters. It gets us back on track. When we worship in joy, like we did on Easter Sunday, as resurrection people, when we worship in loving our God, like Richard talked about, with an undivided heart, when we worship in faith, trusting God again to do what he says he will do, when we worship in hope, looking forward, not backwards, not in the backseat of the station wagon, but moving forward, when we do those things well, then we fulfill the purpose for which we were created to worship. Our lives begin to make sense when we worship because we learn to, as Carol prayed, to to give ourselves away as living sacrifices. Again, I think that was pretty much the sermon that Carol, I don't know if people are stealing my notes or or what before they pray, but Logan and now Carol, uh, thank you for preaching the prayer today. that That was stirring, moving. When we learn to do that, when we learn to lay our lives down on the altar of the Lord's altar, then we offer our bodies as an act of worship, holy and acceptable to the high and holy God of the universe. And that leads us to our last sermon in this series. There's so many powerful passages on worship in the Bible, it's hard to really narrow them down to just four or five, but I want us to spend some time today as we close in the book of Nehemiah. I love Nehemiah and we're going to kind of peek into a worship service that takes place in ancient Israel. So if you're able to this morning, I invite you to stand in honor of God's word. As I read Nehemiah 9, 1 through 6. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. 
On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hadiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, almost got it, said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. That sounds like a song we just sang. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Man, I, I, I love the, uh, the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're both these amazing, strong, wise, godly leaders who, who help uh, the, the re- returning exiles come back into Jerusalem. And they're so motivational and they're so uh, powerful and, and rich characters that every time I read them, I'm inspired to be a better leader. I want to be a leader like these guys. If you are a leader in anything that you do, I encourage you, go home today and read Ezra and Nehemiah. And that's be a better leadership lesson than any $1,000 executive level course that you could take here in town. Originally, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. They only got separated relatively recently in, in history. And in the Hebrew Bible, in the, the Jewish scriptures, they appear near the end of the, the Hebrew Bible. I always thought it was strange that in our Christian Bible, they appear kind of early because they tell the story about the end of the Old Testament time. They're, they're part of the books of history that are giving us a glimpse into what was going on near the end of the Old Testament, right before Jesus showed up on the scene and changed everything. So, How do we get to the end of the Old Testament? Well, let's zoom out real quick and let me give you some context and some background for Nehemiah before we get into this text. You know, at the beginning of everything ever, Act 1, right, Genesis 1, 1 through 3, you have God who made a perfect world, a very good creation in which there was no flaw or sin or death. But then, of course, Adam and Eve, who were placed into the Garden of Eden as vice regents to work with God in caring for creation, in multiplying, and in subduing the earth and having dominion over it. They chose their own way. The serpent convinced them to to choose the one thing they couldn't have when they could have the rest of the world. They only wanted the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. So they sinned. They chose their way over God's way, and everything changed. The garden became Jurassic Park at that point, right? Animals turned on each other. For the first time ever in the history of the world, things died. Things became decayed. Things became corrupted for the first time. Pain, death, heartache, loneliness, all those things entered the world in Genesis 3. So then, of course, God sends them out of the garden, but he continues to to bless his people, and he makes a plan to bless the whole world and to reverse the curse of sin by creating a special family for himself, a covenant people that would be set apart to be his special people. And he starts with one guy, Abram of Ur. And just like he promises, he grows and grows Abraham's descendants, and 
In the end, though, they end up in Egypt in slavery. So God delivers them out of Egypt through a series of amazing miracles, and he leads them to the desert where he gives them his law. The law is a set of good commandments and and precepts and rules for flourishing. God wants his people to flourish and be blessed in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. But they, of course, immediately began rebelling and made a golden calf and prayed to the golden calf. And through idolatry, they they ended up wandering for 40 years in the desert. Finally, they enter into Canaan and God gives them the, the promised land. But of course, they're not satisfied with a pure theocracy. They want a human king on a throne, just like the other pagan nations around them. So God gives them a king and they become a monarchy for a hot minute. That doesn't last long because, of course, sin and rebellion. King Solomon blows it. He started out wise, but he collected much gold and women and and power and became an arms dealer, basically. And so, of course, the kingdom split into north and south, and both of those kingdoms refused to listen to the words of the prophets that God, in his grace, sent to them to tell them, repent, stop this madness, turn back to the Lord your God. But, of course, they killed those prophets So the Lord finally judged them, both north and south, by having foreign powers come in and wipe them out, take them into exile as slaves. So at this point, the Jewish people had been dwindling down into a faithful remnant that was living in exile in Babylon. So timeline-wise, Abraham's about 2000 BC, King David and the monarchy's about 1000 BC, and now we're at 500 BC. In 539 BC, the Babylonians themselves were wiped out by a massive army from Persia. And King Cyrus, the Persian king, told the ragtag group of Israelites, I don't care what you do, you can go back to Israel. So they go back to Canaan to rebuild their precious holy city. So waves of of Jews go back to rebuild Jerusalem, and they start by building the most important part, the temple. They build the temple first because worship is central to the people of God. The temple is where worship happened. Faithful worship was a life and death issue for God's people just as it is for God's people today. If they got worship right, they thrived. If they didn't get worship right, if they became idolaters, then everything fell apart. That's the story of the Old Testament. And the Lord sends a guy to this remnant in Jerusalem named Ezra. He's a priest, a scribe, who loves God's word and God's ways. And he sends him to teach this returned group of exiles about who God is and and how they can worship faithfully. At the same time, God sends another guy, an administrator, a governor named Nehemiah, to oversee the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem that had been completely torn down by the Babylonians 70 years ago. Nehemiah is this amazingly motivational governor who inspires the Israelites to work hard with a trowel in one hand as they lay the mortar for the brick for the walls and a sword in the other hand as they're ready to defend this fledgling repopulated Jerusalem against the neighboring nations, city-states that wanted to destroy it. So the Lord in his grace gives the Israelites success in the face of overwhelming odds, and they're able to complete the walls and the doors and the gates of the city. So then what happens? 
worship. Worship is the proper response to God's grace and their success. So Nehemiah calls out all the Israelites to come gather in Jerusalem, and Ezra in chapter 8 has this massive worship service. And Ezra the priest reads from God's word, reads the book of the law over the people of God. And they they realize their sinfulness and their brokenness. And they also realize that it was time for them to celebrate the festival of Sukkot, which Sukkot means booths, tabernacles. It was designed to help God's people remember when they were in the desert that they lived in tents. They lived in dwellings, little booths, as they went about in the desert. (coughs) And how the Lord provided manna from heaven, like we sang about earlier. So look at chapter 8, verse 17. It'll be on the screens too. All the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua, son of Nun, Joshua, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great, very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he, Ezra, read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule of Scripture. The very next verse, chapter 9, verse 1, says that only a couple days later, during the same month, a very different kind of worship service takes place. Instead of feasting and drinking like they did in in chapter 8 with very great rejoicing at the festival of booths, a joyous occasion, This time, in chapter 9, the people of God are told to fast. They're told to come empty, to come gather hungry. It's a service of confession and recommitment to the Lord. So we started this worship series in April with a joyous Easter celebration, talking about the need for us to throw off the grave clothes and, and live as resurrection people in the face of overwhelming odds in this world. But now we're going to close with a gathering of broken people who are bringing their sins before the Lord with penitent hearts. But joy and brokenness are not incompatible, are they? Both joy and brokenness are necessary components of true worship. So verse 1 here in chapter 9 tells us that the people were wearing sackcloth and they put the dust of the earth, ashes, on their heads like we do at Ash Wednesday. It's a sign of mourning. They're grieved by their sin and their separation from God that has re, uh, resulted as, because of their sin. So then verse 2 tells us that the, that the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners for this service. I know that may go against our political sensibilities of this day, but this is not xenophobia, okay, I promise. What is happening here is that, first off, we know that our God is the God of all peoples, right? That he, we are headed toward an eternity around a throne with every nation, tribe, and tongue. That God is glorified in the diversity of human lives and bodies, and all people bear his image. All humans. The Israelites separate themselves primarily here because this is a confession of corporate national sin in which the other nations have no part. They have no need to come confess their national sin in this service because this is a service for Israel to confess confess their sins, the sins of Israel as a nation. 
Another reason they separate is because at this point in the story of everything ever, Israel stands alone as the covenant people of God. We Gentiles haven't yet been grafted into the people of God like we do after Jesus Christ comes. Look at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. It says, God's saying to his people, you shall be holy to me for I am the Lord and I am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The covenant people of God are set apart for these purposes. At this point in the story, like I said, we haven't been, Gentiles aren't part of this, but now we are set apart as God's people to live differently from the world in order to make a difference in the world. So the people are also confessing the national generational sin of their fathers, their ancestors as well. Their parents were great sinners. Their grandparents were great sinners, and they did not uphold their end of the covenant bargain. This shows us clearly that sin is never an individual problem, is it? Sin always has communal consequences, this is why Isaiah said back in his throne room vision, remember, when the angel appeared to him, he said, woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The community around him affects him. The sins of others around him affects him just like it affects us. In our culture, you know, we're always striving to have more privacy and more autonomy. We have privacy fences. We have privacy screens. We really want to have our own control over our own little world, our own little bubbles. But this is not what Scripture teaches. My life, my sin, my past, present, and future, it all is related to the people around me. It's never just between me and Jesus. The phrase, accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, never appears in Scripture. He's not just your personal Lord and Savior. He's the king of the universe and of all people, whether they know it or not. Generational sin affects us in profound ways, which is greatly important for us to realize as parents of children, as children of sinful parents, that generational sin works both ways. We need to remember that as well. And we see an order of service here. Richard always does an order of service for us uh, during the week for our staff and emails it out. You see here in verse 3, the order begins that the people stand in honor of God's word as it's read out loud for a quarter of a day, mind you, and then they have a time of confession and praise for another quarter of a day. You know, we always hear about it if uh, people have to stand for more than two songs, three songs. Yeah, more than two songs. It's like, whoa, that's a lot of standing. Yeah, or, if, you know, God forbid we go over 58 minutes and 30 seconds on the broadcast cuts off in the middle of the sermon. I love they always blame you for that, too. They're like, Nathan's got cut off again. It was Richard's fault. <laughs> I talked too long. That was, that's on me. <laughs> At least for the second quarter of the day here, they're not standing. They're bowing down in confession, and in praise. The word that's used for worship here in verse 3, it says they worshiped the Lord their God. It's the word that Richard mentioned in his first sermon uh, of this, in a few years, I guess, not his first sermon, but on April 8th when he preached the word shaha, which literally means to bow down low to the ground. 
That word is normally translated as worship, but it carries a deep sense of submission and surrender. You know, in our culture, I think it's easy for us to equate worship with like a warm, fuzzy feeling, right? We, we hear these worship songs on the radio, and, and I love them. We sing them at my house, and I love to, to feel good and sing those songs. But we need to remember that worship is so much more than a warm, fuzzy feeling, isn't it? Worship must involve sacrifice, surrender, submission. Romans 12.1 that Carol referenced in her prayer I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, offering all that you are on the altar to the Lord and saying, here am I, God. I surrender all. Worship is laying all that we are prostrate before the sovereign Lord and saying, it's all yours, God. When verse 3 here says they worshiped the Lord, it doesn't mean that they stood up and got their hymn books open and sang Amazing Grace. It doesn't mean they sang some worship chorus either. It means that they put themselves flat on their faces before the holy God and confessed their brokenness, their flaws, and their penchant for sin. So after standing for the word of God and then bowing down for the confession, the people now stand again in verse 5. There's a lot of standing, sitting. I know Cynthia VSC's their wedding's coming up. We talked about Catholic weddings. You know, you sit, stand, kneel, and there's a lot of, you know, your hamstrings get a good workout by the, by the end of it. But I love it because when we do things with our bodies in worship, it helps connect our souls to what our bodies are doing, our, our bodies to what our souls should be doing. The, the Levites instruct the people to stand up and bless the Lord. That song was really neat, Richard. I've never heard that before. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. It's a call to sing. They're invited to sing a psalm in response to who God is. So you see this rhythm in the, the, the service of standing and sitting and kneeling. It may seem superfluous like a Catholic wedding seems sometimes, but it's really not especially not in Ezra and Nehemiah here. This is not empty ritual. They're not concerned with merely keeping the law as a formality. If you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, it becomes clear that they know that the religion of the Lord is a way of life. It's a living reality that grows out of a living relationship with God Almighty. So, one of the major keys for worship that we see in Ezra and Nehemiah, both, is the primacy of Scripture in worship. My friend Rabbi Flip down at Congregation Micah in Brentwood, he's been there for about 10 years now. He, he told me how they, they start their services at Congregation Micah. He goes to the ark, which is a closet in the middle of the stage, and he opens the ark, and he takes out the Torah. This, the, they have two Torahs at Congregation Micah, and this one, particular one is about 500 years old. And he takes it out of the ark, and he sets it on a stand, and he takes these beautiful silver uh, pointy things, there's probably some Hebrew word for them, I don't know what it is, and takes them off of the scroll. Then he takes this beautiful covering off of the scroll, and then he takes the Torah and he unrolls it to the, today's Torah passage, and then he takes the Torah and he walks it into the congregation, and people touch it. They touch the top of the Torah, 
And he, he moves around the entire congregation with the word of God, symbolizing God's revelation coming to his people. It's powerful, isn't it? Maybe I should start walking this big Bible here around uh, the congregation. Because it's an amazing thing that God has revealed himself to us in written form, in holy scripture. That's an incredible gift, an incredible blessing that we have in worship. In John chapter 4, we read about the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus met when she came to draw water. He told her, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Isn't that amazing? God's looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Well, worshiping God is a spiritual act because God is spirit. He's a spiritual being. So if worship is supposed to be spiritual, that means it it cannot be a mere intellectual exercise. We are not called to be the frozen chosen, right? We're called to engage our spirits in worship. That means that worship must engage our hearts, our souls, our, our, our passions. That means that there is definitely cause in worship for emotion, for deep feelings to well up as we worship. But we also worship in truth. That means that our heads are engaged as well as our hearts, head and heart, fully engaged. We focus our minds, attentions, and our hearts, affections on the true God of the universe in worship. Our minds, attentions, and our hearts, affections on God to worship in spirit and in truth. So what is truth then, as Pilate asked? Where do we go to find truth? How do we make sure that we worship in truth? Well, as Christians, we proclaim that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. We also believe that the Holy Bible reveals this truth, Jesus, to the world, that every page whispers his name. This is why we teach and preach the Bible so that we can know the truth and the truth will set us free. This is why we read the Bible out loud every time we gather together in worship because we want to worship in truth. So let me give you five simple takeaways as we close today that I see in this text about how we can worship in truth. Five things that we need to focus on each and every time we worship. If we're going to worship in truth, first we need the truth of Scripture. Like Ezra, like Nehemiah, we start with Scripture. It's got to be primal in our worship. The written self-revelation of God to humans must be the foundation upon which we build our worship. We, if we don't have the Bible as the foundation for our worship, then we're not going to be worshiping in truth. I have nothing brilliant to offer you from my 36 years of life. I have no creative insights into this world that are going to help you in any way, shape, or form apart from Holy Scripture. The Bible shows us the truth, and then we respond in worship. Second, we need the truth of the past. You know, you don't suddenly become someone who has it all together and all your baggage is just left at the door when you walk in here. We bring all of our past experiences with us when we engage in worship. That's why I prayed and thank God for your parents and for your families, Nate and Kylin, because your past is part of who you are today. 
You know, in our text for today, the Israelites owned up to their past when they worshiped. They faced the facts of their past. They brought all their baggage, all their generational sin from their parents, from their grandparents, from all those who'd gone before them. They brought it all out into the open before the Lord in worship. Look at verses 29 and 30 in chapter 9. A few verses later, the the priests are still praying. They say, God, you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. Emphasis on live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them, our ancestors, you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Confessing generational sin, remembering our baggage is important. But third, when we worship, we don't just stop with our past. We need to remember the truth about our future. We're no longer defined by that past. It does affect us in ways that are deep and indelible, but we're not defined by them. We're defined by our present and by our future. Because God has lavished his grace on us, we now have an opportunity for a fresh start, for a blank slate, for a hope and a future, is what Jeremiah said. So the truth about our future allows us to worship in hope, like we talked about last week, to be positive and and to be optimistic as we worship. I'm I'm so sick of hearing doomsayers and naysayers, you know, as as Christians, we know that God is making all things new. We sang that today too, earlier today. That's where we're headed. That informs our worship because we know the truth about the future. Fourth, we need the truth about God, about who God is. Look at verse six again. The priests know the truth. They begin their prayer with these words, acknowledging the truth of who God is. You are the Lord You alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. Paul says, in you, all things live and move and have their being. And the host of heaven worships you. That means the host of heaven doesn't just sing songs, but that they bow down in submission and surrender to God. God's true character and his true nature must be on full display when we worship. We should seek to honor God as God when we worship, right? And finally, the fifth truth that we need is the truth about us. The truth about who we are. We are not God. We are broken. We are in need. We are so deeply flawed that we can't even imagine the reality of how desperate we really are. We therefore need God's grace. We have no hope apart from God's grace. The grace that, as Carol prayed earlier, that that he would give his only son because he still loves us so much in order to make us right with himself both now and for all eternity. That's our hope. If we will worship in these five truths, letting the truth of Scripture show us the truth of the past and the truth of the future, the truth 
of God and the truth about us, then we will ensure that we are worshiping in truth, that we are the kind of worshipers that God is seeking for himself. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for showing us who you are and who we are. Thank you for showing us our past and our future and how we are affected deeply by our past, oh God, but we're not defined by it. We have a future and a hope, a living hope in you, oh God, of all creation, the Lord who made heaven and earth and who sustains them and who ordains praise from them. God, you have condescended to us time and time again in your mercy and in your grace. God, we pray that you would help us to worship in truth, to not be misinformed by this culture, by the world around us, but that we would see through it in order to be the kind of worshipers that you yourself are seeking to worship you. God, help us to follow where you go as you lead us. We pray that as we move into this next month in this series on evangelism, God, that you would never let us forget the primacy of worship and our purpose. Help us to remember how important it is to worship you and you alone with all of our hearts, laying ourselves down on the altar, saying, take all that we are, God. May it be holy and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now. If you want to come to the altar and just kneel and pray, if you want to bring your body to where your soul is right now, this is a time to do that. I'm going to ask Jan Bennett and, and Trey uh, again, and, and then Brad, if you'll come as well. If you want to pray with one of these people, if you have um, a prayer request or, or something, you can pray with them. They'd love to pray with you. I've prayed with all of them before, and they're wonderful, godly people who I trust. If you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never received the free gift of salvation that he offers you, uh, then this is the best time to do that right now. Or if you have never joined Woodmont and you're ready to say, we want to be a part of this family of faith, we want to be part of what God's doing right here and be officially part of the membership, I think it's feeding back, Herschel. You turn, there you go, thank you. Uh, we appreciate all of our, our staff so much and volunteers who make everything work. Whatever you need to do during this time, don't leave this place without having dealt with God as you need to. Let's stand and sing step by step. Oh God, you are our God.